Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Part three of the course <clears throat> brings us to the question of the future prospects for the church. And by way of general introduction, I want to explain that it's my purpose in this part three of the course to present what I might call a case <clears throat> for an optimistic amillennialism. I sometimes I actually tell people I'm an optimistic amillennialist. You wonder why I say that. Well, because I, I think there are forms of, uh, of amillennialism, frankly, uh, our forms of amillennialism that are fairly pessimistic. Now, much less so than some forms of, than what is common among dispensational premillennialism in terms of their prospects they hold out. <clears throat> but uh, without mentioning any names, because uh, although I'm pretty sure that's the truth, uh, I, I don't want to misrepresent anyone. I would want to say that while I'm not a postmillennialist, I am an optimistic amillennialist, and I'm going to present my case for that in this part three of the course. And this is probably one of those uh, things that is um, most supplemental to what I say and in times made simple and most absent from that particular treatment of eschatology. Now, by optimistic amillennialism, I mean to defend the idea that the future prospects of the church are bright. That is to say, I will defend the idea that there is every reason to expect Christ's church to grow and pop, prosper throughout this age. This optimistic amillennialism is to be contrasted with postmillennialism because it does not extend this optimism to the world at large. And so this is one of the great distinctions between postmillennialism and optimistic amillennialism. In my view, that what I am optimistic about is the church in this age and not the world in this age, all right? I don't see the growth of the church then as leading necessarily to some golden age of uh, peace, prosperity, and righteousness for the world. Um, so I will defend the idea that the future prospects of the church are bright. I will defend the idea that there's every reason to expect Christ's true church to grow and prosper throughout this age. This optimistic amillennialism is to be contrasted with postmillennialism because it does not extend this optimism to the world at large. It does not foresee a golden age of peace, prosperity, and righteousness for the world before Jesus returns. Optimistic amillennialism expects not a golden age for the world, but a global growth for the church. 
Now, in order to present this case, we will study a number of key passages that are both <clears throat> often neglected and I think frequently misunderstood. We'll begin with the parable of the wheat and weeds in Matthew 13. It provides what I, I think of as a beautifully balanced approach to the prospects of the church in this age, uh, which include both tribulation and prosperity. Matthew 24 will then be considered. Uh, it is both important in its own right as the classic eschatological teaching of the Lord, and because of the view it gives for the darker side of the church's existence in this present age. The predictions of the, and the, of the promises of the Lord in Matthew 16, and then the progress assumed in the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, especially in Luke 13, will provide us with a perspective on the growth and prosperity of the church that contrasts strikingly with the pessimism of popular prophetic views of the last century. So, section one then brings us to the parable of the wheat and weeds, and uh, I want you to turn there and read that passage with me. Matthew chapter 13, the parable itself is given in verses 24 to 30. And then it is interpreted later in the passage after some intervening comments by the Lord. So verse 24, and then we'll read its interpretation uh, <clears throat> in verses 36 and following. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then after uh, uh, telling the parables of the mustard seed uh, and leaven, uh, and some comments by Matthew, uh, we come uh, to verse 36, where we are told, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are, sons, are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. 
Now, in the parable of the tares, or as it may be in the more contemporary way called the wheat and weeds, I believe a comprehensive and profound perspective regarding the prospects of the church in the present gospel age uh, may be found. Fully to appreciate, however, that perspective, we need to look at its teaching through three lenses. And so we'll look at it, what it teaches in common with the other parables. <clears throat> Uh, what uh, in Matthew 13, uh, what, that, what it contribu- contributes peculiarly to the teaching of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, and then in what it teaches about the prospects of the kingdom in this age. So first of all, then, what it teaches in common with the other parables of the kingdom. Now, some of this will be familiar from some of the things I said by way of criticism of Waymire's hermeneutics, but we'll go into a little more detail and um, proof. Uh, What it teaches in common with the other parables of the kingdom. These parables have a common emphasis because they all address the same question. This question was raised by the historical situation in which Jesus and his disciples found themselves. The Jews in general conceived of the coming of the kingdom as a glorious deliverance from all their troubles. Political and temporal expectations permeated the Jews' views of the coming of the kingdom. And uh, many passages in the New Testament presume this or assume it. John 6.15, Acts 5.35-39 talk about some of these uh, political and temporal expectations and their tragic results. Even those Jews with a less carnal expectation, like John the Baptist, viewed the coming of the kingdom as involving the judgment of the wicked with irresistible might. This is the most natural interpretation of Matthew 3, verses 2 to 12. It was in such a context that Jesus came preaching the nearness and then the actual coming of the kingdom. Matthew 4, 17, uh, the kingdom is near. Matthew 12, 28, 29, the kingdom has come. John the Baptist gladly embraced Jesus as the one who would usher in the glorious and irresistible coming of the kingdom. But when Jesus continued to preach the nearness of the kingdom and even preach the actual presence of the kingdom, without the coming of the judgment of the wicked and the onset of the glorious consummation, John the Baptist began to have doubts. When John was arrested and imprisoned, the problem became acute. Acute. How could the kingdom have come already in Jesus while John was rotting in Herod's prison? It was the last place John expected to be after the coming of the kingdom. And that's why we read the language of Matthew 11, 2-6 with the question put to Jesus, the one whom John had proclaimed to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Um, and we see these doubts emerging in the uncertainty of John's heart. Uh, And then you have that difficult saying that we've talked about with John being called less than the least in the kingdom uh, by Jesus. And we talked about how prophets were distinguished for their knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom. And we saw that to understand this, we must confront a scriptural phenomenon, and that's the flattened perspective of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, all of that material uh, is familiar to you. So that we learn from Matthew eleven two 2 6, that a godly and believing man like the great prophet John the Baptist struggled with the seeming inconsistency of Jesus' preaching of the kingdom 
and with what the Old Testament itself had led the Jews to expect. And of course, we cannot think that we cannot think that Jesus' disciples would be immune to the same doubts, having the same context in Malu. No, they would have to face the same question: How could the all-conquering, glorious eschatological kingdom of God be present in the former, con- former? Um, pardon me, uh, be present in the former carpenter and his motley followers. In other words, the question addressed in the parables of the kingdom is how the kingdom could be present in Jesus, his preaching, and his disciples. The common emphasis of these parables is the response to this question. The response is the theme of these parables. It is that the kingdom is come and is present in a form unexpected by the Jews, but that this present form anticipates its future glorious consummation. So in other words, the theme of these parables is that the coming of the kingdom has two phases. This is the mystery of the coming of the kingdom. It unfolds in two stages. First in a form unexpected by the Jews and even John the Baptist before it comes in its final glorious form. And uh, you see my attempt to illustrate this, uh, the prophetic perspective and then the kingdom perspective. Now all of this is the backdrop, all of this is the context of of uh, the parable of the wheat and weeds. And in some ways, the parable of the wheat and weeds, uh, I think, is the leading and most exemplary parable of the parables of the kingdom. Uh, so let's look at the parable of the wheat and weeds in terms of what it contributes peculiarly to the teaching of the parables of the kingdom. This parable expands on a truth implied in the parable of the four soils. If the kingdom is present as sowing, then the kingdom of God comes in two stages. If it is to come as the eschatological harvest, then it must for that very reason come first as sowing or seed time. Until the harvest, time of harvest, good and evil, men would coexist in the world even during the time of the kingdom and after the coming of the kingdom. Um, This was the extraordinary thought with which Jesus confronted the Jewish mind of his day. Now look, you see, this is, um, this is something that I think you have to appreciate. Um, people come to these parables and they, and they say, well, we've got to find something mysterious here because these are about mysteries of the kingdom. And what's mysterious about good and evil men coexisting in the world? The answer to that question is nothing. What's mysterious is good and evil men coexisting in the world after the coming of the kingdom. So, <clears throat> I think a lot of the false interpretations of this parable have come from a, desire, from a need, a sense, uh, that you have to find something mysterious here. And there's nothing at first glance mysterious about good and evil men coexisting in the world. It's only when you add the fact that the kingdom is present and John is rotting in prison and that good and evil men continue to coexist in the world after the coming of the kingdom and, and, and the threshing floor has not yet been cleansed, to use the language of John the Baptist, that you begin to see what the mystery is. For the Jews, the coming of the kingdom meant the destruction of the wicked, but Jesus teaches that the coming of the kingdom does not mean the immediate destruction of the wicked. It's for this reason that these parables are called mysteries. It's in this that the mystery of the kingdom in large part consists. The Messiah comes first as sower, then as harvester. 
and it is not his will that the wicked be immediately destroyed. That waits until the coming of the kingdom as harvest. Uh, Now, that brings us then to our third point here, what this parable teaches us about the prospects of the kingdom in the gospel age. And A, the key to its teaching. Implied above and key to what will now be said about the important teaching of the parable of the weeds, the parables of the, should be parable of the wheat and weeds, for the subject of the prospects of the church in the gospel age is an observation that has often been missed in the history of the interpretation of this parable. The field is not the church. It is according to the explicit statement of Jesus in verse 38, the world. As I said, this has often been missed even by orthodox interpreters, especially those that were under the shadow and uh, false doctrine of the idea of a state church. As I said, then this has often been missed. Listen to Matthew Henry, for instance. Now, the drift of the parable is to represent the present and future state of the kingdom of heaven, the gospel church. The mixture there is in it of good and bad in this world. The world here is the visible church. No, it's not. One wants to take up euphemisms to ball Mr. Henry out when you hear stuff like that. I want to use the strongest euphemism I allow myself. Good night! Well, anyway, the identification of the field as the church is a serious misunderstanding with serious practical consequences which distort both the divine rules for the church and the world. Lenski underscores. Lenski, I'm, I'm amazed, but Lenski underscores the practical errors involved historically with Henry's interpretation. Of supreme importance is the statement that the field is, in quotes, the world, therefore not, in quotes, the church. This is so vital because it excludes two serious errors. The one that the sons of wickedness may remain undisturbed in the congregation, no church discipline, no expulsion, The other, that the sons of wickedness may be removed from the world. The use of the sword against heretics, either by the church herself or by her use of secular power. Man, that's pretty insightful for a Lutheran, you know? What can I say? I'm shocked. But anyway, (laughs) Um, now, here here I come back to the whole issue of, of what I think leads to this false interpretation exemplified by Matthew Henry and held, I'm sure, by many others. I think I know the reason the interpretation of Henry has held such wide appeal. It's the issue of mystery that is behind it. There seems to be nothing mysterious about the fact that good and evil men will coexist in the world. Hence it seems more mysterious to say that good and evil men, by God's will, should coexist in the church. Now, given the nature of the New Covenant and of the church in the New Covenant, that certainly would be mysterious to the point of nonsensical if it was what the passage actually taught. Once, however, 
The idea is added that good and evil would coexist in the world even after the coming of the kingdom. This is mystery enough to satisfy us. There is no need to insert the extraordinary and misguided idea that the mystery is that God wants evil men in his church during this age. And so, having seen, first of all, then, the key to its teaching, it comes secondly to the substance of its, of its teaching. In both postmillennialism and premillennialism, the negative and positive perspectives about the prospects of the church have often been divided and set at odds with one another. In other words, postmillennialism says, yay, we have all these promises about the growth of the church. That means that evil will shrivel in the world away. Premillennialism says, evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse, and this must mean that the church will finally become apostate. We often gather together in our little brother in assembly, celebrate the Lord's table, and wait for Jesus to come back. Well, you see, both deductions are wrong. Generally, postmillennialism is concentrated on the positive perspective about the prospects of the church and its expansion and minimize the negative perspective about the prospects of the church having to do with its tribulations. Premillennialism, especially that form of premillennialism prevalent today, has generally taken the opposite approach and emphasized the negative aspects of the church's prospects in this gospel age and minimized the positive. In my opinion, both these approaches are faulty in light of the parable of the wheat and weeds. So what I've given you here is a chart showing you the faulty views of the church's prospects during this age. Postmillennialism has argued the expansion of the church leads to the millennial golden age of peace, righteousness, and prosperity before Jesus comes back. Premillennialism has argued from the tribulation of the church, clearly taught in the New Testament, and other negative statements about its experience, to the final apostasy of the church. Well, both of these uh, deductions, I think, are misguided. The proper approach is provided by the parable of the kingdom we have been studying, known as the parable of the tares. The appropriate words of Jesus are, allow both to grow together until the harvest. Boy, it seems like every one of those words would be a separate point in a sermon. Uh, allow both to grow together until the harvest. Matthew thirteen thirty. This is the whole, I think, even though it's the, stated figuratively, the whole point of the parable of the wheat and weeds. Jesus reveals here that it is God's decretive or secret will that both the good seed, later identified as the sons of the kingdom in verse 38, and the tares, or the wheat, later identified as the sons of the evil one, in verse 38, are to be permitted by divine providence to grow. That is to say, to develop, mature, and having enlarging and have enlarging prominent stature and influence until the judgment at the end of the age. The context is, of course, the field, which is the, let's say it together, 
the world, okay? The dual growth here predicated by Jesus has, of course, appeared contradictory to most types of eschatological thought. Postmillennialists have argued that if the wheat grows, it will undoubtedly mean uh, the crowding out and destroying of the weeds. Premillennialists have argued that if the weeds grow, they will stunt and stop the growth of the wheat. Now, it may seem paradoxical to our logic, but according to Jesus, both wheat and tares, good and evil, grow together until the harvest. My next sentence is this. It's not my purpose to explore the depths of this paradox. Paradox it is, of course, at least for human reason, right? That both grow together. This seems wrong. If the gospel prospers in a a society, and, and the church prospers, surely this means that the society will grow itself, the world will grow better and better. And if if uh, the church is persecuted, surely this means that the society will be growing worse and worse. Surely we may argue from the, fa- from the degeneration of our culture to the degeneration of the church. Or can we? <clears throat> well, um, one might, I think, uh, since I'm allowing myself to speculate a little bit here, one might argue that it is the very growth of the good seed that makes the world worse. One could also argue uh, that it's the very it's the very persecution and tribulation of the church that, uh, in some ways, has a beneficial effect on human society. <clears throat> Well, it's enough to say, uh, although I just want to make you think about about this and how contrary it is to human reason and logic, it's enough to say that one of the profound truths implied in this paradox is that the very interaction of good and evil leads to the maturation of both the good seed and evil seed and their respective development. That's, 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 I think that's a pretty magnificent Thought not because I said it, because I think it's what the Bible teaches. Uh, the notion, the notion is that it's the very growth of good that leads to the maturation of evil, and it's the very maturation of evil that provokes the growth of the good. The main point that we must learn from Jesus' words is that there is both a negative and a positive perspective to be seen and balanced in any discussion of the prospects of the church in the gospel age. So here we have the biblical view of the church's prospects during, during the gospel age. Both grow together until harvest. The sons of the evil one grow, and this means, of course, tribulation and apostasy, uh, that are our realities in the church. But the good, the good grows, the wheat, the sons of the kingdom grow and prosper. And this means, of course, inevitably means the expansion and blessing of the church. Both grow. 
allow, says Jesus, both to grow together until harvest. And, and Lenski's exactly right then. This tells against any uh, use of the sword by the church to, uh, to extirpate heresy from the world, and it tells against any uh, notion that uh, the church ought to allow in its membership, because it's the will of God, after all, both wheat and weeds to grow together. Uh, no, none of those things follow. Uh, the church is to be pure and to purify itself, and it is not to be, at least according to the perceptive will of God, uh, it is not to be composed of both wheat and weeds. The key to holding these two things is the one we noticed above. We must carefully distinguish between the church and the world, and remember that the field and the parable is the world, not the church, not just the church. The prosperity, growth, and progress of the church promised in Matthew 16, 18, and Luke 13, 10 to 21 does not mean the conversion of the world in classic postmillennial terms. We may have bright hopes for the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church without falling into postmillennial extremes. We may have realistic views of the increasing ungodliness of the world and the advance of the mystery of iniquity without denying the certain success of the worldwide mission of the church. So, the words of John Murray then, with regard to the prospects of the church during the age, uh, during the gospel age, uh, uh, <clears throat> form um, a fitting conclusion to this part of our studies. I see I have a couple of words wrong. Speaking of the period intervening between Christ's two advents, he says, interadventual history is characterized by tribulation, turmoil, strife, perplexity, wars, and rumors of wars. Contemporaneous with this, however, is the universal expansion of the church. I think uh, Murray has, uh, with his characteristic scriptural insight, combine two ideas that have often been separated and turned against each other in the history of eschatological thought. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.